Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Kim and I'll be your conference moderator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in the listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. Instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your telephone keypad. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Mads Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former editor and health correspondent for National Public Radio. Mads, you may go ahead. Thank you, Kim. Well, hello and welcome to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. Author in the Room is made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. My name indeed is Madge Kaplan, and as Kim said, I'm Senior Communications Strategist at IHI, and I serve as moderator for these monthly discussions. They're designed to bridge the gap between knowledge, what is published in an article, and action, being able to translate knowledge into steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today we have two featured authors, Dr. Rafael Harpaz and Dr. Fang Jun Zhao. They are two of the authors of Impact of Varicella Vaccination on Healthcare Utilization. The article appeared in the August 17th 2005 issue of JAMA. Dr. Rafael Harpaz is medical officer at the National Immunization Program at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He has current responsibilities relating to epidemiology and policies involving shingles and varicella. Dr. Fang Jun Zhao is Senior Fellow at the National Immunization Program at the CDC, and he's responsible for economic analyses of public health problems. Welcome, Dr. Harpaz and Dr. Zhao. Thank you. We're delighted to be here. T terrific. Also with us today to help focus our discussion on the application of the article's findings is Dr. Charles J. Homer, a pediatrician with advanced training in epidemiology. Together with colleagues from around the United States, Dr. Homer established the National Initiative for Children's Healthcare Quality in 1999. NICHQ, as it's fondly known, seeks to eliminate the gap between what is and what can be in healthcare for all children. Welcome, Dr. Homer. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Terrific. The purpose of today's and future Author in the Room calls is for you to hear directly from an author or authors, as is the case today, about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. We know that making the leap from what's on the page to changes in how care is actually delivered can be daunting. That's why each Author in the Room call is guided by a clinical improvement expert, such as Dr. Homer today. The way our hour together will go as follows, Dr. Harpaz will spend about 10 to 12 minutes summarizing the varicella vaccine research. Then Dr. Homer will take about 10 minutes to describe improvement methods and suggest practical ways to apply the research findings to medical practice. At the bottom of the hour, we try to stick very close to that, we'll turn to questions from callers and some discussion. Dr. Harpaz, Dr. Zhao, and Dr. Homer will all be available for comments and to uh, field your questions. 
IHI and JAMA plan to study the degree to which author in the room participants incorporate the clinical improvements suggested by our experts and the impact these changes have on clinical practice. So we ask that all participants complete two short surveys immediately after the call and three months from now. These surveys are emailed to you and we thank you for taking the time to complete the surveys so that we may really monitor and measure the value of these discussions. We have uh, at least about 90 uh, lines or 90 organizations registered for the call today. Members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. And one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites. Okay, so let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Rafael Harpaz, Harpaz excuse me, who will provide an overview of the newly published research on the varicella vaccine. Welcome to author in the room, Dr. Harpaz. We're really excited to hear about your work. Thank you very much, Madge, and hello, listeners. Chickenpox, or varicella, was once a common part of clinical practice. In fact, prior to licensure of varicella vaccine, there were about 4 million cases of varicella annually in the U.S. Although varicella is frequently perceived as a disease that doesn't cause serious illness, especially amongst healthy children, it used to result in about 10 to 15,000 hospitalizations and about 100 to 150 deaths annually in the U.S. before vaccine became available in 1995. Since that time, vaccine coverage rates have re reached over 88% amongst preschool children, and the incidence of varicella has dropped substantially. However, national surveillance data have been incomplete, and comprehensive data regarding outpatient as well as hospital utilization have not been reported. So we therefore conducted a study to analyze a health insurance claims database to examine the impacts of the varicella vaccination program on medical visits and on associated expenditures. The study was conducted using MedStat databases from 1994 to 2002. These databases included an average of about 4 million enrolled children and adults per year from over 100 insurance plans, providing coverage through about 40 large employers throughout the U.S. The databases contain patient demographics, dates of service, length of hospital stay, payments, diagnostic codes, and other variables. Our analysis included enrollees 0 to 49 years of age for whom complete person-level information was available in the databases. We examined inpatient admissions and outpatient visits occurring between January of 1994 and December of 2002 with varicella codes. Using 1994 and 1995 to establish our pre-vaccination baseline, we looked at trends in rates of varicella hospitalization and outpatient visits. To look more specifically at the impact of varicella vaccination of the program, of the vaccination program, we compared trends in states that had consistently high versus consistently low vaccination coverage. We also explored the role of other variables on rates of outpatient utilization. Direct medical costs for hospitalization and outpatient visits were calculated and then extrapolated to estimate national expenditures for varicella hospitalizations and outpatient visits. And so now for the results. From the pre-vaccination era to 2002, hospitalizations due to varicella declined from 2.3 to 0 0.3 per 100,000 population. That's an 88% decline. During that same period, outpatient visits also declined from 215 
to 89 per 100,000, which is a 59% decline. Declines in hospitalization and outpatient rates were both significant, though the decline in hospitalizations was greater. Hospitalizations and outpatient visits declined in all age groups, but the greatest declines occurred in infants under one year of age who were generally not even vaccinated. Infants presumably had fewer opportunities for exposure to varicella due to reduced circulation of varicella in the general population. Notably, the decline in pediatric outpatient visits was more rapid in states with consistently high varicella coverage compared to states with consistently low coverage. Also, varicella hospitalizations and outpatient rates declined significantly for enrollees from both capitated and non-capitated plans. Based on extrapolation of our data, we estimate that national medical expenditures for varicella hospitalizations and outpatient visits together declined from about $85 million annually during the pre-vaccine era to about $22 million during 2002, which is a decline of 74%. So in conclusion, we found that since introduction of the varicella vaccination program, there's been a major decline in the rate of outpatient visits for varicella for all age groups. Even more importantly, hospitalizations reflecting the most severe manifestations of the disease have declined more dramatically still. We found that the benefits of the vaccination program extended to unvaccinated persons as well. So how do the results of our paper relate to clinical practice? Well, perhaps the most important result is that the clinical community is doing a great job vaccinating their patients and that vaccination is preventing almost all severe varicella disease. You should all congratulate yourselves for that effort. The recent licensure of a combined measles, mumps, rubella, varicella vaccine should increase vaccination coverage further still. I'd argue that the primary clinical implication of our paper is that there were so many varicella hospitalizations to prevent in the first place. As I noted earlier, many clinicians have not realized that that once common pediatric illness, chickenpox, so often led to hospitalizations and even death generally amongst previously healthy persons. Although varicella caused 100 to 150 deaths a year in the pre-vaccine era, parents and clinicians alike have traditionally been pretty complacent about varicella since most children with chickenpox do not become gravely ill. So whereas the actual number of vaccine-preventable deaths from varicella is comparable to that for, say, meningococcal disease, for instance, Meningococcal disease typically instills much more fear amongst parents and providers alike due to the high proportion of cases that progress to complications or death. While hospitalization rates went, went down most dramatically, outpatient visits representing milder disease declined as well. Indeed, clinicians are seeing less and less varicella. Furthermore, since the varicella vaccine is only about 80% effective, as the proportion of the population that's been vaccinated increases, an increasing proportion of varicella cases occur amongst vaccinated persons. This brings me to my second clinical point, that varicella cases occurring amongst vaccinees tend to be high, tends to be highly modified, and it can be very difficult to recognize and correctly diagnose. There are typically few systemic symptoms and few lesions, generally less than 50 and often less than 10. Furthermore, the lesions are often short-lived, and they may be macular or papular rather than vesicular. While vaccine-modified varicella is usually mild, it's still contagious, though less so than varicella in unvaccinated persons. 
It's therefore important for clinicians to consider the diagnosis of varicella in the correct clinical and epidemiologic uh, setting. If the diagnosis is in question, lab testing can be used for diagnosis, preferably with PCR-based tests, which are available commercially and at public health labs, so that convalescent titers won't need to be drawn. We were gratified with the sharp declines in varicella rates amongst infants and adults that were seen in our study. All infants and most adults were likely unvaccinated. The declines of disease in such unimmunized populations reflect reduced exposure to circulating varicella as vaccine coverage increases, sometimes called herd immunity. However, while we're delighted with the declining rates of disease, this herd immunity paradoxically raises a concern that leads up to the third clinical implication of our paper. Prior to varicella vaccination, exposure to varicella was all but universal, particularly during daycare and early school years. Virtually the entire population experienced varicella by late adolescence. But those children who came of school age just as the varicella vaccination program began to be implemented were less likely to be exposed to varicella due to increasing herd immunity. If they themselves were not vaccinated during those, those early years of the program, by escaping varicella disease during childhood, they remain susceptible to at, at adolescence and at, at adulthood to varicella. And varicella is much more severe in adolescents and adults, with hospitalization and deaths increased about twofold for adolescents and by about over 20-fold for adults. This cohort of susceptible individuals, therefore, remains particularly vulnerable. To prevent large numbers of susceptible older children from entering adulthood without immunity to varicella, last June, the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices that advises the CDC, recommended that states strengthen enforcement of school and child care entry requirements for varicella immunity and that states establish and enforce similar requirements for, for students entering middle school, high school, and college. However, while school entry laws are a very effective tool to prevent individuals from falling through the cracks and reaching adulthood vulnerable to severe vaccine-preventable disease, ACIP has no authority over states regarding introducing such laws. So clinicians such as yourself will continue to be the front line for making sure that this vaccine-preventable disease does not occur amongst your patients. In addition to recommendations regarding vaccination of adolescents, the ACIP also recommended last June that all adults be screened for evidence of immunity to varicella so that, so that they can be vaccinated if they are susceptible. Among adults that should be screened for immunity, ACIP highlighted the screening of pregnant women. Not only are women of childbearing age at increased risk of severe varicella for the same reasons as all other adults, but pregnancy itself may further increase the risk of severe varicella, and furthermore, Prenatal infection puts the fetus at risk of intrauterine varicella infection, which can result in congenital varicella syndrome. So the third clinical implication of our paper is that, in addition to children, providers should screen their adolescents and adult patients for evidence of immunity to varicella and vaccinate those that are, that are susceptible, which in the case of pregnant women should begin immediately following pregnancy. These recommendations represent the final maturation of a one-dose varicella vaccination policy, leaving only infants 
and persons with and persons with medical contraindications to vaccination susceptible. Once fully implemented, these recommendations will have the added benefit of further reducing varicella circulation and exposure, thereby reducing the risk of disease amongst both vaccinated persons due to vaccine failure and unvaccinated persons with contraindications to vaccine. Our results gener were generated from administrative data. While we made every effort to evaluate the validity of the data with reassuring results, one must be wary of drawing epidemiologic conclusions from data collected for billing purposes. Furthermore, the data might not be fully re reflective of the general population. In the final analysis, there is no substitute for surveillance based on reporting of cases to public health authorities to monitor the performance of the vaccination program, identify problems should they arise, and to recognize outbreaks. The Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists has therefore recommended that states now begin to conduct case-based surveillance for varicella. The fourth clinical point and final clinical point I'd like to make is that providers play the primary role in that process by alerting the local health department when they diagnose cases of varicella. Thank you very much for your interest and attention. Thank you very much, Dr. Harpaz. A lot of uh, very substantive stuff there for us to talk about. Now, we want to turn to what the research uh, and some of the uh, clinical implications you were discussing suggest about actual changes in clinical practice that clinicians and those in a position to perhaps propose new practice ideas and to influence new practice ideas might consider. That's the role of Dr. Homer, uh, who will now uh, talk about the model for improvement and uh, drill down to some of the implications of the research we're hearing about today. Go ahead, Dr. Homer. Okay, terrific. Thank you, Madge. And greetings to everyone. My role is to help us apply the lessons from this study to our practice setting so that we can all improve what we do at our work every day. Clinical research such as this study often provides guidance on how we practice but it's up to us to use that guidance to improve care. Our main guide and the main way that we propose going forward with that application is a tool or a model we call the model for improvement. It's simple yet very effective, very powerful strategy. The model for improvement is the term that we use in quality improvement speak, but many of you on the call will recognize in that model basically the scientific method. It's one way of applying the scientific method to the improvement process. There are two parts to the model for improvement. The first is really a stating of the aims of the improvement process, of our hypotheses. And the second part is actually undertaking and testing those hypotheses. Let me go into each of these two parts in a little more detail. The first part has three subcomponents. The first component, just like in a study, you need to have a clear study aim. When you're undertaking an improvement project or process, you need to clearly state what you're trying to accomplish, the aims of your improvement process. The second thing you need to do, which is, again, directly analogous to a research study, is to identify the measures that you're going to use to determine whether, in fact, you're making progress. Unless you have measures, it's hard to see whether any changes you're making really are making a difference in the right direction. The third part of this first component 
is identifying what are high leverage changes, what are likely changes that are going to result in improvements that you want. And that's really where a study like this comes into play because it identifies, together with other things we can learn from the field, changes that are likely to succeed if we can implement them in our practice settings. The second part of the model is a repeated testing of the hypothesis, an iterative testing process, running many experiments, if you like, to think of it that way. It's testing changes in the way that you practice in order to achieve results. In the improvement process, we call this uh, repeated testing plan, do, study, act cycle. It's very simple, and it involves first planning what you're going to test and how you're going to do it, then doing the test, then in the process of doing the test, collecting a small amount of data and impressions to assess whether you're making progress, and then studying those results, and then finally acting on, on your studying and acting on the reflection that you've done. So that's what you call a plan, do, study, act cycle. One thing that's a little bit different in the quality improvement world is that unlike in a uh, research study in which you really undertake only one cycle, you undertake significant planning, you do it, you reflect on it, and then you write it for publication in a journal such as JAMA, in the improvement world, you undertake a small, rapid test, reflect on your results, and then take to another test, and then another test, and then another test, always reflecting and always continuing to develop and see whether you're making progress towards your goal. Finally, after you undertake multiple plan, do, study, act cycles, you try to assess whether you've come up with a way that works and improves results in your practice setting, and then move towards implementation. That is, can you take those changes and establish those in your practice setting in a way that the changes are going to be sustained? Typically, in undertaking the plan, do, study, act cycles, you run through enough different settings and circumstances that you can anticipate the problems that you'll run into over time and establish those and implement those into your improvement program. That's all that I wanted to say about the approach to improvement, but it is extremely powerful. And the challenge that I put before everyone on the call is how you can take the lessons that we learned from this study and then design simple, small tests in your own practice setting so that you can improve your outcomes. Specifically, in this case, improve your outcomes related to varicella immunization and presumably other forms of immunization. So what I'd like to do now is pose a question back to the authors, Dr. Harfaz and his colleagues, uh, Harpaz and his colleagues, so that we can really understand what the lessons are for clinical practice. So what, what I'd like to ask, based on looking at this study, is saying, asking Dr. Harpaz that if you were actually a practitioner in the field and you wanted to improve the rates of varicella immunization in your practice, where would you start? What are the first things that you would do so that you could undertake tests and run towards improvement? Thanks very much, Dr. Homer. Um, first, I'd want to have a better feel for my denominator and for my current varicella vaccination performance, both in absolute terms and as compared to other pediatric vaccines. 
As a CDC physician, I've had some experience with the clinical assessment software application, which is also called CASA, which is an exceptional tool for assessing pediatric and adolescent coverage and which can help one learn of any deficiencies in vaccination practice and how to correct them. This tool is actually available on the uh, CDC website for free, and it's also available to assess vaccination practice among adult pa your adult patients as well. One unique aspect of vaccination is that, uh, that is unique to uh, varicella is that persons with acceptable evidence of prior disease do not require vaccination, so documentation of disease history, including any lab testing if relevant, can be important. Other practices that can improve varicella vaccination coverage would include providing varicella vaccine during the same visit as MMR, and indeed to consider using the new combination MMR-varicella vaccine to avoid extra shots. And finally, one can use a reminder system to alert parents about the 12 months visit as their infant approaches 12 months of age. Children that miss that visit and do not come, uh, come by 15 months of age can receive additional recall attempts. Well, terrific, that's very, uh, that's very helpful uh, because what we've heard here in this specific case of immunization is there have actually been a number of studies, excellent studies, that really look at what are the processes that practices can implement in order to improve their immunization rates. And they include, just as Dr. Harpaz said, the system of uh, uh, reminder recall as well as uh, including the assessment of your practice performance and providing feedback from that. In fact, there is a wonderful resource that I'd like to commend to everyone on this call that's put together, put out also by the CDC called the Guide to Community Preventive Services which reviews the evidence on all of the different uh, strategies that have been tried to improve immunization services and then lists uh, which of these approaches are evidence-based and then provides sufficient detail about how you could go about implementing those in your practice. Are there, uh, are there things that are unique, Dr. Harpaz, to the varicella approach, uh, to the issues around varicella immunization that would be different from, for example, from other topics in immunization, from other areas, whether it's the, whether it's the DTP, DTAP immunizations, or whether it's uh, the annual flu vaccine uh, that you think provide unique challenges and unique implementation challenges for improvement? Yeah, I think it's that issue of about uh, disease history because a fair number of people have experienced varicella and um, the issue of, of being able to, of having that documented and making sure that that information moves with the child from provider to provider as they change providers can be a real hurdle and of course um, it could lead to, if that information is not passed along, then it could lead to a lot of um, unnecessary extra vaccination. So as an that's very helpful, thank you. As an improvement specialist, that, that raises two different, I'd like to focus on two different aspects of the response there. The first question was how do you identify in your practice setting whether somebody is immune or not and what systems can you set up in a practice? A, a typical approach in the absence of system thinking is to hope that the physician will be able to remember they're supposed to ask about this during an encounter and phrase that question in a way 
that they can get a reliable answer and then uh, remember to order the appropriate test if they haven't, uh, if they do that. If you move it into an improvement context, you would say, first of all, what's your aim? And the aim presumably would be to have 98%, perhaps 100% documentation in all of your patient charts, and you might specify initially in which age group you're looking at, of a person's varicell Im uh, immune status. And then you'd say, okay, that is the aim, uh, and you would try within your practice setting to get agreement that that's the aim which you're going to proceed. We would typically then recommend forming a team to work on uh, this improvement process because something like immunization rates is not typically uh, a function which really resides entirely within a single clinician's responsibility, but really is a responsibility of the entire practice or the entire organization. So you would form a team if you're in a, a small practice, that team might include the front desk uh, staff person, the medical records person, might include your office nurse. If you're in a hospital, that obviously might include a larger group, including your infection control a staff or hospital uh, infectious disease specialists, um, as well as other personnel within, within your hospital. Could be your pharmacy a staff who might be responsible for providing and uh, supplying the vaccine. Um, once you've formed your team and once you've set your aim, you then need to come up with your measure. And your measure, again, while can be complicated, can also be very simple. You might simply say as your measure uh, a chart audit simply definition of whether there's documentation or not. You could then look to the CDC to say what is appropriate documentation, uh, and that might be a documented case of varicella, uh, or it might be laboratory proof of immunity. And then once you come up with your measures, you then say, well, what are some of the strategies which have been identified that, that you could work, uh, that could work to help do this? And some of the kinds of strategies that you might think of would be, for example, uh, involving families, involving patients in completing surveys prior to coming to an office. It could involve using a reminder system. It could involve having a front desk a staff person review records prior to visits to see whether the information is there or not, and if it's not, to flag it. So there are a number of those kinds of uh, changes that have been known to be effective. Then the question in a practice is what's the smallest meaningful test of change that we can test by next week, next Tuesday, as we say at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Um, and there we would typically have one practice, perhaps on one, one practitioner's uh, patients in one particular morning, uh, maybe would undertake a small test such as using a form at the front of the office chart to see whether they can uh, increase the rates of screening for immune status. Uh, and then based on that, they'll probably discover that the form needs to be revised and that a different person needs to put it out there and the questions need to be asked in a different way and perhaps that a lab slip needs to be attached or even that a, uh, a, a photograph needs to be attached to varicella to help remind people. So the variety of many different tests that you could undertake, but if you keep undertaking different tests, then you'll have a strategy to move forward. This is Madge uh, Kaplan, and I'm going to jump in. This is uh, really fascinating. Everyone can uh, tell they're in very capable hands with all of you. 
Uh, I wanted, just before we turn to callers, uh, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Homer, if you could just address for perhaps a minute uh, what is the contribution that something along the lines of an immunization registry, uh, what kind of contribution can that make uh, to this process of improvement? Uh, that's a terrific uh, question, Madge. And again, Dr. Harpaz actually highlighted the importance of once, if you have an effective uh, immunization registry, particularly on a community-wide basis, then once you have information such as the person had varicella or had the varicella vaccine and it's entered into a registry, uh, then if that patient goes to another setting, you'll have that information on a regular basis so that you won't be uh, unnecessarily undertaking tests or repeating unnecessary immunizations. Where would that registry reside? You mean more with public health officials uh, in, in that capacity? In many places and in many, in many states uh, and in many communities, there are, in fact, public health-based uh, community registries, which are extremely effective if we're able to do that. Uh, there are certainly also great utility within a practice or a hospital setting to have registries, and again, ideally to have those linked to the larger uh, public health registries, so that an individual practice can quite easily track how they're doing uh, on their immunization performance, and they could generate regular reports that would see who was in need of a particular immunization at a particular time, can generate the reminders, which again is a strategy that we know works, or we call a recall, which is if somebody has missed an immunization that they receive a notice indicating that they need to come back. Okay, very quickly, Dr. Harpaz, uh, do you know if these sorts of registries are very widespread at the present time? My understanding is that there are over 40, I think 44 states now have um, regional or statewide immunization registries, and I'll echo exactly what Dr. Homer had to say. Um, providers should really actively participate in their state registry when possible, and they can find out about it through their local or state health department. Uh, have a link to the registry. It's, it's actually a win-win issue because as providers increasingly participate in registries, then the data in the registries become increasingly complete and accurate and useful. Okay. Well, thank you both, Dr. Homer, Dr. Harpaz, and I know Dr. Zhao is there uh, awaiting any questions that he can help out on. Uh, a quick reminder that IHI and JAMA plan to study the impact of author in the room on call participants' clinical practice using two short surveys. Please don't forget to complete the surveys that will be emailed to you, and we greatly appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of the discussion we're having today. We're now going to turn to questions from our callers. You may have questions of various types about the science, the methodology, and most importantly about the process of how to go about making changes in clinical practice, which is our focus today. And uh, please state your name and where you're from and be as concise as possible and if your question is directed to someone in particular. So Kim, let's go to questions. Thank you. Now at this time we will conduct a question and answer session. If you wish to ask a question, please press zero, then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue, and one by one, your lines will be open to ask your questions. Again, that is zero, one on your touchtone phone. Our first question will come from Benjamin Burko. Please go ahead. 
Hi, this is Dr. Benjamin Bertho, pediatrician in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Wondering if there is a repository of images on attenuated varicella, that is, those, uh, those rashes uh, appearing in children who have already been vaccinated. I'm concerned that I and my colleagues have missed some of these macular masquerades uh, of what is true varicella in the vaccinated population. Dr. Harpaz, that sounds like something for you. You did address this a little bit in your presentation. Yes, I did, Dr. Burko. Thanks for that question. I think it's a very important issue. Um, as I mentioned, uh, in vaccinees, varicella can be highly modified, and, and in the extreme, it could have uh, fewer than 10 lesions and, and, uh, and look like insect bites for all the world. Um, what, uh, and and it's, so one really has to look at the epidemiologic context and find out about, uh, ask whether there might have been an, a varicella exposure, things of that sort. Um, I don't think there, for the most part, break, what's, what's often called breakthrough varicella is vesicular, and for the most part it does have some relationship with varicella, uh, so I don't want to overstate the case, but it just, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, uh, a joiner that, that you should really uh, kind of think about varicella in, in the right context. As far as photographs, um, I think there might actually be a site, um, a site on the CDC website that does show some photographs, but I can't really say that for certain. I'm sorry I don't have that information. Well, you know what we'll do, uh, just as a follow-up to that, is we do offer web-based discussion following these calls, and if we can get that information circulated on uh, the discussion, uh, then Dr. Burko, you can look for it there. Thank you kindly. Okay, thanks for that question. Uh, Kim, someone else? Our next question will come from Ann Frederick with Lincoln, Lancaster County. Please go ahead. Uh, yes, thank you very much. I'd like for the authors to speak to the ramifications, particularly untoward um, reactions that might come from immunizing a vulnerable population. Uh, they mentioned a twofold increased severity for adolescents who uh, contract uh, um, the varicella and a twentyfold for adults. So if you're going to uh, determine uh, what their uh, immunization status is and then immunize them, uh, can we expect that we're going to have higher reactions to that immunization? Um, if I'm understanding, thank you for the question, uh, Ms. Centrup. Uh, if I understand your question, you're asking whether uh, individuals, uh, adolescents or adults who have a prior varicella disease history, whether they're at risk of, of greater side effects from the vaccine? Is that your question? Those that have not been exposed in childhood have not been immunized, and so they get to be like 16 years old and they need to be vaccinated. Will the, uh, administering the vac vaccine mean that they will have a higher likelihood of having a severe reaction to? No, there's no evidence that there is a greater risk of side effects. Of, uh, the side effects from varicella vaccine tend to be injection site complaints, which occur in maybe 15 or 20 percent. There's a rash uh, after vaccine, vaccine in maybe 4 or 5 percent, which can be maculopapular. It's usually only a few lesions. And there are rare systemic reactions. Um, the rate of side effects um, is not increased in adolescents or adults who are susceptible to varicella. 
what I was saying was that I want to make sure I was clear earlier was that for adolescents and adults who are susceptible to varicella and are exposed and develop chickenpox, they tend to get much, much sicker than children who get chickenpox. Hope that okay, helps. thanks for that question. I'm sorry, did someone want to add something? Okay. Kim, uh, we'll, we'll move along. Our next question will come from Andrew Miller with Prange. Please go ahead. Hi, I was just interested since you mentioned the, the savings from of of treating cases of varicella from the vaccination. Did you analyze the cost of providing the vaccination? And I don't want to imply that I don't think this is a great thing that, that we've gotten children and, and adults vaccinated, but I'm just interested in if you looked at the other side of the cost equation. I'm that for Dr. Zhao. Uh, um, I'll go ahead and take that. In the, in the, okay. Not in the context of this paper. Um, we only looked at the cost of hospitalization and, uh, and outpatient visits. We did not look at many, all the other assorted costs, including medications, the cost of the vaccine program per se. We just know the cost of the, the vaccine, but not the program. Um, so this was not intended as a formal cost analysis. That being said, um, these data, which we did extrapolate to the national picture, would be accurate to be applied in a more formal, uh, a formal comprehensive cost analysis that included all those factors. Thank you for the question. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Our next question will come from Eric with Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Please go ahead. Yes, Dr. Harpaz, this is Eric Pohl with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee. Um, I have a question. We're trying to improve our immunization rates uh, for our Medicaid population, otherwise it's known as TenCare. And I noticed in our administrative data, we have very, very low rates, and we use our state immunization registry. And I say that low rates comparatively to the other immunizations like MMR um, and the hepatitis B. And you had mentioned that you feel that the immunizations have been have improved and have been implemented widely. And I'm trying to figure out um, our rate, even when we have medical record review implemented, is right around a 39% uh, completion rate for our population. And that seems pretty low uh, compared to the 75 to 80% on the other immunizations. Do you, do you think we're missing data, or where do you think that where that's coming in from? Well, I think that's a... Uh... That's a very important observation. Um, there are a number of possibilities, um, and it's hard for me to know. Uh, first of all, are you talking about what age group children are you referring to? And the the HEDIS measure just addresses those who are turning 13 as of the, the reporting year. 13 years of age. Ah, that's, I think that, that's the answer. That gets back to the issue of documenting disease is my guess. Um, nationally, we know that uh, vaccine coverage for varicella is about 88% for children 19 to 35 months of age, and the range from one state to the next is somewhere, I don't recall exactly, somewhere in the mid-60s to the low 90s. Um, but when you look at older children, that's where the issue about disease history can really, really um, give you all kinds of confusing results. There's, it's possible that a large portion of those 11, 12-year-olds that are being assessed for HEDIS purposes do have a, a disease history and that it wasn't captured. 
Um, but, but to really look at that, I'd need to kind of go over the data with you more, and I invite you to contact us afterwards if you want to discuss that in greater detail. Okay. Is there contact information available? Because I, I don't have it with me at, or on my system at the moment. Yes, we can also. We'll work that out on the web-based uh, discussion. Uh, we'll see. We'll get some information up for anyone who wants to follow up, okay? Okay. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Dr. Homer, I want to just interject for just a second since uh, this is maybe the second uh, question that does relate uh, a bit to this adolescent population. Uh, are there very particular strategies regarding adolescent immunization and making sure uh, that this, too, is a protected population? And I know we're talking about capturing the history, uh, et cetera. And any thoughts here? Well, uh, I'll jump in and then also ask Dr. Harpaz if he has additional comments. Uh, as I think everyone knows, one of the big challenges with adolescents is they tend not to come into the healthcare system very much, and particularly they tend not to come in uh, for well-child visits. Their encounters tend to be focused on uh, injuries, sometimes illness, occasionally sports physicals. So one of the effective, more effective strategies in getting adolescents is to take advantage of every opportunity. That is, any time that they come in for any reason to have a system set up so that they're, we're undertaking uh, the screening and documentation process. I think that's probably among the most effective, as well as some of the other kinds of uh, uh, regulations that were mentioned in the article and policies. There are already policies around school entry if there were additional policies around transitions at particular grade points, whether it's entry into uh, seventh grade or entry into high school or graduation from high school. Those are other strategies that will drive uh, the adolescents into the healthcare system where presumably the system will be put in place that the kinds of screening uh, processes that I mentioned before could be implemented. Okay, Dr. Harpaz, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I agree very much with Dr. with, with uh, Dr. Homer's comments. I'll, I'll add that uh, my understanding is that to date there are 19 states that have varicella um, adolescent, um, I'm sorry, middle school uh, law entry laws, and we know that school entry laws are an extremely effective tool for increasing vaccination coverage and making sure kids don't fall through the cracks. Um, I will say this is a very important issue because clinicians are being asked to address an immense number of prevention issues during a very short adolescent patient encounter, um, and, and uh, there are going to be more vaccines that are introduced for that population. We already have uh, recommendations for adolescent pertussis vaccine. We heard about that several months ago in your program. Uh, we have meningococcal disease vaccine, and soon there will probably be an HPV vaccine. I have, um, and, and so there, that's a very important point. I agree that assessment is very important for every patient encounter. When they're new patients, they probably can fill out the patient intake form and put down their information about a varicella history. Um, and then the strategies we talked about earlier, including CASA, reminder recall, um, and, and uh, standing orders for office staff as well. And All right, thank you very much. Okay, Kim, let's get back uh, to the callers. We actually do not have any questions in queue right now. Just All a reminder right. to the audience to ask a question, please press zero one. All right, uh, I will jump in with a question. Uh, Dr. Harpaz uh, did make some reference to new criteria for immunity to varicella that were recently adopted by the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices. Why don't you quickly run through those criteria so our listeners hear about those? 
I'd be delighted to match. Uh, last June, the ACIP approved the following criteria, though they're still not official until they're published by the CDC, which, which should happen soon. First, written documentation of adequate vaccination as age appropriate with dates. Second, being born in the United States before 1965, since serologic surveys have shown that such persons almost all have antibody evidence for past varicella disease. Next, for persons born between 1966 and 1997, a valid history of varicella disease based on clinical or epidemiologic or laboratory evidence. Self or parental report is adequate for this purpose. However, for, children, for persons born since 1998, a disease history is not considered evidence of immunity unless the illness was lab confirmed since, as we discussed earlier, the accuracy of a clinical diagnosis is much more uncertain in recent years. Uh, fourth, since uh, shingles is by definition indicative of immunity to varicella, a valid history of shingles based on a healthcare provider diagnosis is also acceptable criteria for immunity. And finally, um, it's uh, varicella antibody titers. Uh, commercial assays can be used to assess disease-induced immunity but importantly, they are not sensitive enough to detect vaccine-induced immunity. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, if somebody wanted to, you know, find those, you said they're not quite uh, uh, officially published yet. Uh, some sort of a timeline for when a few folks might find those? They will be available within a matter of weeks. Okay, and where would, and find it through the CDC? Yes. Okay, very, very good. Uh, Kim, anybody else uh, step into queue? We do have a question from Margaret with AZAP. Please go ahead. Uh, yes, this is Peggy Sim with the Arizona chapter, American Academy of Pediatrics. We've had a lot of issues recently, actually, around what turns out to be a potential barrier to quality improvement, which is payment for vaccines. Vaccines are a substantial investment for um, physicians, and as particularly the co new combination vaccines come online, which do make great strides towards um, helping to ensure that kids do get vaccinated in a timely way, they also tend to present big cost barriers. And I was wondering if um, um, Dr. Homer has any suggestions on how to address some of those confounders to quality improvement in a practice. Good question. Thanks, uh, Dr. Homer. I, uh, I think it is a wonderful question, and thank you for asking it. I don't have a magic bullet um, in terms of a an direct answer for that, a couple indirect answers. Uh, one is, as you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics has been a very effective advocacy organization in terms of improving immunization reimbursement. So certainly uh, through your chapter and through the national office, I would uh, get actively involved in advocacy work around uh, improving immunization rates. I think one of the challenges, um, one, of the, one of the issues is that the, the financial benefit of improved immunizations, uh, such as reduced hospitalization costs and, and reduced loss of work time, doesn't accrue, the benefit of that doesn't accrue to the individual practitioner. Uh, they only see the expense side of it. Um, sometimes a health plan uh, or, for example, a state Medicaid program may see the benefit uh, if they have reduced hospitalizations and ED visits. Um, so I think the advocacy approach that needs to be taken or that is often effective in taking this is approaching the 
entity that does get some benefit, that sometimes is the employer, that sometimes is the plan, and sharing the kinds of data which this article presents and says, look, you are in fact saving uh, funds uh, either through improved work performance by your mothers who aren't missing work to take care of their child with uh, chickenpox or by saving your hospitalization bills. And it's only appropriate that then the provider costs are appropriately reimbursed so that immunization rates can be high. Uh, that's not a short-term fix. That's a long-term process. Um, but that is the strategies that I'd recommend. Thanks for wading in. Uh, Dr. Harpaz, is there anything you would want to add to that? Uh, no, I think I would uh, echo what Dr. Homer had to say. There are, of course, it's a, it's a policy issue. There are states that have first dollar coverage, um, which essentially mandates that the commercial insurance covers vaccination. There are states that have um, that finance um, uh, vaccines um, for children who can't otherwise, who can other, um, I'm sorry, who, who, can, who cannot afford it. And of course, there's the federal VFC program, which uh, finances vaccines for children that can't afford it. But I don't have any other uh, magic bullets. Okay, thank you both very much. Uh, Kim, any, any more questions? There are no further questions at this time. Okay. Well, I'm going to slide in one more before we start to run out of time. Uh, Dr. Harpaz, uh, wondering whether this varicella vaccine program that you've been monitoring has had any impact on herpes zoster, otherwise known as shingles. That's a, that's a very timely question. Um, just to provide some context, following chickenpox, the varicella virus remains latent in dorsal root ganglia and reactivate years later to cause shingles. Um, I first want to start out by saying our study was not designed to assess the impact of the varicella vaccination program on shingles, but I can offer some speculation. Just like wild-type varicella virus can cause shingles, the varicella vaccine, which consists of attenuated varicella virus, can reactivate and cause vaccine strain shingles. However, at this time, it appears that the risk of shingles during the years following vaccination is much lower than the risk of shingles during a similar interval of time following chickenpox. The other question is more controversial, and that is that there's a connection between the vaccine program to shingles um, for another mechanism. As circulation of varicella in the population declines, Persons with prior varicella illness have fewer opportunities to be exposed to varicella and to have their immunity to varicella virus boosted. This lack of exposure can therefore affect rates and median age for shingles. Uh, furthermore, this could affect the risks, risks of postherpetic neuralgia, which is a feared complication of zoster, which itself is very age-specific as well. To date, there are no convincing data regarding these issues. Although at this early point in the vaccine program, it's unlikely that such potential impact would already have been manifest. And so we'll have to wait and see. And I, my, my own intuition is that we're not going to see a, a problem with this, but I, I, we just don't have the data yet. 
All right, thank you very much. Well, that is all the time we have for your questions. There will be a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website for participants who'd like to continue a conversation with one another. You will find a link to this discussion group right on the homepage of IHI.org. Look under Community then discussion groups. In order to view or participate in the discussion group, you do need to register with IHI.org, but it's free and simple to do so. And as I said, we'll try and get, uh, there were a couple of questions uh, people asked, and we'll try and get some of that information up there. We are coming to the end of this seventh in a series of hour-long discussions we call Author in the Room. Thanks very much to Dr. Rafael Harpaz, Dr. Fang Jun Zhao, who we knew was there at the ready, uh, who also uh, very much contributed to the article in JAMA, and also a special thanks to Dr. Charles Homer. And I'd like to give Dr. Harpaz and Dr. Homer a chance to just uh, make some very, very brief closing remarks. Why don't we start with you, Dr. Harpaz? Uh, okay. Um, I'd just like to reiterate that our paper demonstrates the success of the varicella vaccine program since its beginning 10 years ago. I've emphasized several clinical points. First, that Varicella can be very severe and even life-threatening. Second, that the diagnosis of varicella has become challenging as rates, of, as, as rates decline and since the disease is modified in vaccinees, so lab testing is becoming more important. Third, that screening for evidence of immunity has become pivotal to prevent persons from reaching adulthood vulnerable to more severe disease. And we discussed the challenges of introducing some of these screening and vaccination policies into your practices. And finally, I've emphasized that physicians play a frontline role in reporting varicella so that public health authorities can act to control outbreaks and identify problems in the vaccine program. All right. Thank you very much. Dr. Homer. Uh, thank you, Matt. I think for me the concluding comments I'd like to make are simply to point out that immunization is really the, the best example of improving immunization rates is really the best example of viewing your practice as a system. Uh, and I would urge you to use, use this example of, of trying to improve care focused around improving rates. And if you do that or when you do that, you'll be able to apply that same approach to improve, improving care across a wide variety of things, including uh, both acute illness and chronic illness in children and other areas of prevention. All right. Thank you all, uh, Dr. Harpaz, Dr. Zhao, and Dr. Homer. Uh, this is a monthly series that takes place the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on October 19th. Look for further details on both the IHI and JAMA websites. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. As a reminder, IHI and JAMA plan to study how and whether author in the room participants make use of the clinical improvements suggested by our experts. Today's discussion of the varicella vaccine suggests some changes in practice clinicians can test on a small scale even starting next week or maybe tomorrow. We are asking all participants to complete two short surveys that will be emailed to you immediately after the call and three months from now. Again, thank you who've joined us today for taking the time to complete the surveys. And thanks to our guests and to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good day. <laughs>